religion, politics, philosophy, and science. You will be challenged. You will question everything you thought you believed. Prepare to be. I'm pretty excited about today's show. We get to talk about sex again. Woohoo! <laughs> I've got Sarah back uh, from long ago, the, the <laughs> voice of Analyzed. How you doing, Sarah? I'm good. How are you? Good. And I'm a little tired, but I'm drinking coffee, trying to stay awake. Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> as well as uh, I think you are too, aren't you, Daryl? Absolutely. I'm halfway through. I may have to stop the whole thing and get another cup here. So just be aware. <laughs> hey, hey, do what you got to do. Huh? We'll, we'll try to hold the show. We'll hold the, uh, hold, uh, hold the no. ship while you're gone. No. Today's guest <laughs> is an old friend of ours that, man, I have not talked to you in, in it's been years. What, yeah. What were we saying? Like four years ago is probably the last at, time at, that we've talked. At to you. least it could have been five years. I, I've lost track of time. <laughs> There's right. so much going on. And of course, COVID was five years in, in, one, in one year. So who yeah, knows? Yeah, that's true. So that's, that's been 10 years then. Yeah. <laughs> so but we today's... keep track of each other. I keep track of you two. Uh, uh, well, you're not hard to keep track of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're all over the place. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, I've kind of watched some of your other uh, podcast interviews. I need to introduce who you actually are because uh, um, you're one of my favorite people. But uh, yeah. Uh, not that anybody actually listens to the show, because it's just us, uh, unlike some of the other shows that you've done. But uh, f if there is anybody who's listening in, um, today we're talking with psychologist Dr. Daryl Ray. Um, you've done a lot of stuff. You've created, uh, well, you founded the Recovering from Religion Foundation, um, mm -hmm. which is like a nonprofit organization which helps uh, people dealing with issues stemming from religious trauma, doubt, and non-belief. Um, I, you're the, you're the president of, uh, that organization, aren't you? Right. Yeah. Right. And then you also went on and you created uh, a secular therapy project under the, uh, recovering from religion foundation. Um, yep. basically like a, uh, would you describe that as like kind of a, like a call in and online? Um, it's no, a no, database. No, no, no. Yeah. It's a database. Okay. Yeah. So basically just dealing with people who have, uh, religious trauma, uh, where you can call in and, and, or chat in now, that's actually a really cool feature. Um, and then you've, you've written a number of books, uh, probably the two that, uh, you know, have been more notable have been, uh, the sex and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the God virus, how religion affects our lives and culture. And then, uh, sex and God, how religion distorts sexuality. Um, both of those books were really good. I've actually got sex and God sitting up on my shelf right here. Uh, and then you also did do the, uh, uh, you started the, the secular sexuality podcast and you did that for a few years and kind of handed that off. Um, cause it, it kind of became its own beast, which I can only imagine as yeah. busy as you are probably was a lot to manage. It was, yeah. And they're doing a good job. I turned it over to the, uh, uh, atheist community of Austin and they're just doing a fantastic job. They've, you know, taken where I left it and took it to a whole, whole new level. Are there, which, uh, which is good. 
that's kind of the same group of people that do the uh, the atheist experience group, isn't it? Or uh, exactly the same. Okay, exactly the same. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. And those are that's a cool uh, cool show as well. Yeah, but yeah, today I just kind of wanted to talk to you about some of the concepts that uh, you introduced me to that were really influential to me. Um, one of which is I, it's really useful. I find a lot of utility in the concept. Um, and it did a lot for kind of helping me understand, you know, myself and my own sexuality, but it's not a very commonly known uh, uh, concept. And it's known as uh, sociosexuality or, or sociosexual orientation. Right. Um, and then also you had mentioned wanting to talk a little bit about uh, uh, like the myth of sex addiction. And I think the two kind of relate to each other. So I think that could segue in fairly well. Sure. Um, sure. But yeah, I, if you wanted to kind of just. Uh, introduce the concept of sociosexuality because uh, sure again, that's just not something i find to be very uh commonly understood well it's not not commonly understood and one of the things that i see a lot of sex educators and people out there doing things around sexuality is they're not they're not giving people some really basic information and sociosexual orientation is t in my view an incredibly basic piece of information and once you understand what it is, can literally change your view of yourself and other people, mm -hmm. as you've as you've experienced, I think, Thomas. Right, right, yeah, for sure. Um, I so let's begin at the beginning. Personality. We all we all can agree that we all have different personalities, and we have different mixes of personality, and it's pretty simple to take. Uh, maybe some kind of personality test and find out that you're more extroverted and your best friend's more introverted. And we can see that the extroversion, introversion component of personality is really on a spectrum because you've got people that are way, way out on the extroverted side and we've got people way, way out on the introverted side, but most people are somewhere in between. And if you know anything about statistics, you can actually put that on a bell curve and see that the big bulge in the middle, the, the middle 50% of the people are not gonna be particularly, you know, they're gonna be the middle 50%. They're not gonna be very introverted, they're not gonna be very extroverted. They're gonna be a right. little bit, middle of both. And on Saturday, they may be extroverted. On Sunday, they may be introverted. <laughs> so, because people can, you know, uh, adjust and move. So if you if you understand this as a spectrum, then there's, there's another spectrum that, that feeds into what we're going to talk about, and that is uh, adventurousness, curiosity, and, and we we could see the same thing. You know, your your best friend likes to go out and uh, climb mountains and uh, rock climb, um, jump out of airplanes with no with a parachute. You know, they're, they're very very adventurous. They're always looking for the next adrenaline high. That's what people say. You know. And maybe you, on the other hand, say, why would I want to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? <laughs> I don't even like flying. Uh, I get so nervous. I have a panic attack just thinking about getting on the airplane. Or uh, I'm very reserved about the kinds of adventures I take. Uh, camping for me is a five-star hotel. You know, that's, that, that could be how you, you feel. And yet you could be friends with somebody who's all over the place, adventurous wise, and somebody else could be the opposite. Now, if I said, who's, who's right and who's wrong, who's better and who's worse, 
an extrovert or an introvert, you'd look at me like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) If I said, well, who's right and who's wrong, the adventurous person or the super conservative non-adventurous person, uh, who who would you say? Sarah, who's right or wrong? You tell us. (laughs) Put you on the spot here. (laughs) I know. That's a way to catch someone who's not paying attention. So I apologize. (laughs) Red-handed. My bad, guys. (laughs) Uh, I'm not letting you out of this conversation. uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You have my full attention now. I I could get like getting along with one better than the other, but um, to call one right and one wrong is is kind of another story, right? Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? And think about all the different things um, that that are are in that spectrum uh, for personality. Uh, For Mm -hmm. example, organizational. Some people just seem to have a natural net for organization. Other people can't organize themselves out of a wet paper bag. They're just they just seem to be almost handicapped in, in that way. Of course, you've got people on the other side that are almost handicapped because things have to be so organized. So again, it's another spectrum. There are literally dozens of these components that we all agree are personality components. Now, when you move to sex, we, we have a very different understanding as a culture especially if you're raised in religious environment about sex, sex isn't seen as a spectrum. And we can see this every day in the way the, the media and the religious right treat sex and sexuality. It's like, if you're not a man, you're not a woman, you, something's wrong with you. And you can't be a Christian if you're a trans, trans person, or you can't be a Christian if you're gay. If you think about just sexuality, it's clear that people are on a spectrum. Uh, um, um, Alfred Kinsey came up with the notion of the Kinsey scale back in the 1950s. Right. And he hypothesized that very few people are actually totally heterosexual. They're, they're somewhere on the spectrum between being totally homosexual and being totally heterosexual. And they may move back and forth. So right. more and more in our culture, we're seeing that you can, that our culture's understanding that that kind of sexuality is pretty mm-hmm. uh, fluid and, and you can be, well, you know, you can be more of one and less of another. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's and, the beginning of our discussion on sexuality. What are you going to say, Thomas? Oh, just, and that it's not totally binary. It's not, you know, you're not either gay or straight. You can be um, kind of a combination of yeah, the two. It's, it's not black and white. You know, exactly. so many people think it's black and white, and it's not. Right, right. Well, the gender binary itself is a mm-hmm. is a, a non uh, flexible approach. It it says everybody's either an A or B. You can't be anywhere in between if if you believe in the binary, the gender binary. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clear just from the examples I've given you that sex, sexuality, adventurousness, organizational skills. All these things are on a spectrum, and it's hard to say one is right and one is wrong unless, you're, unless you've been indoctrinated into an ideology that says one is right and one is wrong. What if we had, you know, the uh, equivalent of a religion around organization, and, and un- unless you made your bed every morning before you got out of the bedroom, you were going to hell. I mean, 
Oh my gosh, I'm definitely going to hell. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, we're all. I, I'm with you right there, Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> it, it sounds absurd. It it sounds absurd for us to put a religious ideological perspective around something that's so obviously a personality component. Well, now if you look at at sex, and I mean uh, sex drive, sexual interest, sexual uh, responsiveness. You put that is on on a spectrum as well, and it can it's a biological spectrum. It's a it's a set of behaviors that are deeply and strongly influenced by our hormones. And if you don't believe me, just take a you know take a hormone blocker of a specific kind, maybe a testosterone hormone blocker, and see what that does to your sex drive. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's pretty clear. That I mean, we've got chemical castration now. You know, they practiced that on some criminals over the years, and we know we yeah. can just give you, a, we can give you something, and you'll lose a lot of your sex interest. But uh, since you say that, um, we actually had on one of the previous episodes where we talked about trans issues. Um, mm-hmm. One of our guests, uh, Kristen, who's a trans woman, actually commented on uh, our Facebook post about the episode. Uh, saying that hormones play a huge role. Uh, and they said, you know, uh, when her hormones were out of whack, uh, really couldn't do anything about it. And then when the hormones were fixed, uh, pretty much all of any kind of fixation or unhealthy attitudes stopped. It, it Just having a good balance of hormones uh, was a pretty big impact on her. Absolutely. Yep. There's been quite a bit of research in this area going almost 100 years back. Uh, I mean, it, of course, the research in the 1920s and 30s wasn't very good, and we certainly wouldn't use it. But right. but people have been curious about this. I mean, farmers have been curious about what makes a bull do what a bull is supposed to do with the cows. You know, you really want to know if you're trying to breed, you know, prize prize winning cows. Right. And way back when in um in the 19 1890s and 1910s the uh, farmers were observing and veterinarians as they're learning you know the, the biological science around farming are noticing that some some rams among sheep never seem to want to mate with other fe- with females they want to mount males so they called them non-productive rams <laughs> They actually had a room. <laughs> I would oh call gosh. them gay, but <laughs> they call them not. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh. Well, they weren't producing, so right. I guess no. <laughs> they weren't doing what the farmer wanted. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. So, but so we can just see that hormones have a hell of a lot of impact on this stuff, right? So let's say that I'm born with a high sex drive, and uh, let's add to that one of the characteristics we've already named, and that's adventurousness. Mm -hmm. So if I have a high sex drive and I'm adventurous, I'm probably going to, first of all, want to find partners, sex partners, that'll want to fuck hanging from the chandeliers. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that sounds dangerous, but yeah. It it is probably dangerous. I've never tried it, so don't think I'm, (laughs) I'm experienced in that area. Whereas if I was... If I was a person who had a low sex drive, I mean, our, it means my hormones or whatever my biological configuration simply doesn't push me sexually, then that's 
that if if I also am not adventurous, that I want to stay home on a Saturday night and read a good book. I mean, the, you can see the difference here between these two people. Now, is that which one of them is right and which of them is wrong? Neither of them. Well, but we have religions and ideologies that would say one of the two is wrong. Mm. And which one would you guess, Sarah? I would assume the high sex drive. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's a trick question. You already knew the answer. I was I was For setting me, you it's up. Neither. If you got <laughs> uh, so so sociosexual orientation is a concept that a couple of uh, social psychologists came up with back in about 1990, 91. And over a period of about 25 years, they, they along with other psychologists, they developed, a, a first of all, a seven-question uh, test, if you will, uh, later revised a nine-question test that looks at components of sexuality. Just like we, ju we just now looked at two components, the amount of drive you have and the amount of adventurousness you have. And, and those can be mixed up. What if I have a very high sex drive, but I'm not adventurous at all? You know, I, I want to have a lot of sex, but only in missionary style, you know, once a day <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> oh, sounds so boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, well, I would agree. It sounds boring, but it's not wrong. It's just boring no, to, right. to, to those of us well, who are much more adventurous. Yeah, maybe to you, but maybe not to them. Correct. It's boring mm -hmm. for me. Hey, I'm not shaming anyone. Yeah, we're not shaming anyone. You go, go for your missionary position <laughs> once a day. We, don't, we do not care. <laughs> yeah, so social sexual orientation merely looked at these components and said, we're noticing that there is a spectrum of behaviors among people if you if you just pull out pull out the religious ideology if you pull out the judgment the shame and all that and just look at behavior you will notice that there's a, a certain percent of people who seem to fall on the high end of sex drive and adventurousness and there's another portion that and on the low end of sex drive and adventurousness. And there's a whole lot of people right smack dab in the middle. Now, that's pretty interesting. What they also did was try to look at how permanent is this? How much is this genetic? How much is born right into our biological systems? And they went about, like I said, over a period of 25 years, a number of different psychologists and, and research teams looked at this. And what they found was that there is a tremendous amount of genetic input into this particular behavior pattern. How did they figure that out? They figured it out by doing twin studies. They've literally done twin studies in Australia, in um, Sweden, several other countries. And they look at two different kinds of twins. One, twins, identical twins, let's say, to begin with. Identical twins are a great study group. But they can also look at fraternal twins because they're both in the womb at the same time and they're coming out, you know, with half their genes shared uh, between them. But identical twins are in the womb at the same time and they're coming out with basically 99.9% .9 of the genes shared between the two um, uh, babies. Now, if, if, you should, if you should take those two twins, identical twins, and separate them, 
and put them into different homes and never let them meet for 20 years or 30 years, and you give them the sexual, sociosexual orientation index, you will find that whatever one scores is, you can predict the other ones. In other words, if those two twins are genetically programmed to be conservative and low sex drive, then both of them probably are. And they're both gonna, they're both gonna score similar to each other on, on the test. And on, you know, on the other side as well, if they're high adventurous and very high sex drive, you're gonna score on that direction. So this tells us, uh, and from what, what they were able to determine from twin studies and other studies of, of other, in other ways, there's more than one way to tease out uh, genetics. It's, twin studies is just like the gold standard, but there's other ways to tease it out too. And what they found was probably somewhere between 50 and 60% of your, of your social sexual orientation is determined by by the genes you're born with, period, right off the bat. Right. Now, the other 40 or 50% is influenced by the environment that you're in because that can have a huge impact. And what they found was there's a big difference between males and females, but not in all cultures. Mm -hmm. um, very interesting results that no matter where they gave the test in males, whether in Saudi Arabia or Canada or China, Males tended to have the same distribution. Uh, they were a, they were generally high on social sexual higher mm -hmm. on social sexual orientation, more adventurous, wanting more sex, generally speaking, than women. So if you look at the bell curves and you overlap them, you'll see the bell curve for men is higher. Let's just I'm going to point to the right. <laughs> the bell curve for men goes higher to the right. The bell curve for women goes lower to the left, but they overlap. And there's a lot of overlapping. Maybe. What they found was the overlapping varies quite a bit. And the overlapping never, the male, the male responses or results don't seem to change. But the female responses or results move back and forth. So the overlap in Sweden is remarkable. There might be 80 or 90% overlap in Sweden between males and females. In Saudi Arabia, the overlap might be 20%. So what it's telling us is culture is pushing women one way or the other, regardless of, of their um, genetics. Because women are adventurous. Women like sex. I have discovered that all by myself. <laughs> Your own research. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have done a hell of a lot of research in my life. <laughs> so that's that's the basic concept of social sexual orientation. And anybody listening to this podcast right now, they can go just Google social sexual orientation index mm -hmm. and find the test and take the test. It's just it's like nine questions. It won't take you long. Right. The scoring no, I, is a little bit a little bit complicated, but anyway, yeah. It is. I, I I went and took that a few years ago, and uh, I ended up kind of more on the uh, the right end, the unrestricted end of that that scale. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious too, because uh, I grew up in a very you know fundamentalist, uh, far right, uh, conservative upbringing, um, where I you know I had a lot of uh, like sexual repression, 
And I know once I kind of came out of that, that, that system, that belief structure, um, and then after having come out of that, you know, that belief system, I started kind of working on other things. And sexuality was one of those that I kind of reevaluated. Uh, I found myself, at least initially, um, and this was similar with, with religion. I kind of came out of religion and I went through that uh, angry atheist phase of just, you know, kind of being catapulted out and, and being mad at, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, feeling deceived for a while. And then I kind of balanced oh, yeah. out a little bit. I, I kind of experienced something similar with sexuality where I went from like very, very repressed, um, kind of in the opposite, opposite extreme. Yeah. Um, and I guess that, that might be kind of part of that, uh, social part that you were talking about, right? Absolutely. It's a rebound effect. Right. You know, when you, when you push a pillow down, you hold it down forever. And when you let go of it, it comes back up again. It's a rebound. Right. And when you repress somebody sexually and their biology, I mean, if you take somebody, let, let's just use a, I'll pull a number out of my ass here. Let's say somebody's got a 10, 10%. Clean it 10 off percent, first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like party tricks, you know? Oh, yeah. Just pull something out of your ass. <laughs> well, let's say somebody's got a 20% sex drive, 20% adventurousness. You can repress them all day long, and when you let it off, there's it's not going to come back because it's not much to come back for, you know. And they're right, only ten right. or twenty to begin with. But let's take you. We've got a Thomas, who is put in a Baptist situation for his first twenty years of his life, and he's got an eighty. He's scoring up high as you know, seven, eight, seven or eight on the social sexual orientation index, and we're squishing him down to a twenty. When mm -hmm. you let go of Thomas, it, it's going to bounce back up from the 20, clear up to the 80. And, beyond. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It may be, it may actually go beyond, which is pretty damn normal. Yeah. Uh, you won't be surprised to know this, Thomas or Sarah, that uh, you are not the first person to tell me this. Right. Many, many people, once they figure out, you know, the scam of religion and leave it, go kind of wild sexually and then what? they find their sexual roots or their sexual level and then they they get comfortable inside that level right I, to me that's just kind of where it it sort of ties in with um and i'm glad you mentioned uh, wanting to talk about sex addiction um because for me that kind of ties in you know at least in in my own anecdotal personal experience i for many years I believed I was, you know, addicted to sex or uh, porn, even though I wasn't out like having a lot of sex, I was still fixated on it. Um, you know, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Uh -huh. uh, and that's kind of a common, is a common theme where people, you know, believe that it's, it's very much a thing. Um, even several of the Facebook comments had kind of alluded to, you know, it, it's, you know, people are addicted to, that chemical process that happens in the brain and, you know, it just, you know, you can't do enough to, to get that high. And then, you know, the, you go from, you know, porn to sex to prostitutes and you just kind of have to escalate on to something more and more extreme where my actual experience was, was different. It, and coming out of the repression, of course I had that catapult effect when I came out. Yeah. Um, but then just kind of, being allowed to think about and look at and, you know, have sex 
in some way kind of just normalized it. And that's another thing that I remember hearing a lot about was, you know, you'll desensitize yourself if if you look at too many naked people, which I, I, <laughs> oh my I, gosh. Think, I think there's an element of truth to, you know, kind of what, what I used to always hear in church about, you know, becoming desensitized to it. But I don't think of it as actually a bad thing. Um, I, I feel like the more exposure you have to sexuality, the more normalized it is and the more you can just kind of, it could just be a normal part of your life and you don't have to fixate on it so much because it's not off limits anymore. Right, right. I can kind of take or leave porn. It's not that I, you know, I, I don't like it. It's fine. I just, it's not something that's like a major part of my life that I'm not fixated on because you know, it's, it's always there if I need it, but right. it, for me, it's, it, you know, it's just the fact that it's not forbidden, um, kind of takes away that whole, I don't know, the, uh, just abstaining and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I guess just repression, uh, just not having well, enough. Well, taboo, making something a taboo. Right. which religion does, really drives your attention. If I say, and I'm going to do a little experiment yep. with you you two, uh, and please do exactly, please do exactly what I'm about ready to tell you to do, okay? Gosh, Uh-oh. okay. All right, Sarah, you, you're you with me? <laughs> I'm listening. Okay. So, not gonna do, not, uh, do not think of a pink elephant. Oh, I already lost. Yeah, that's... Okay. See, I told you, Sarah, you can't follow directions. There you go. <laughs> I've never been good at that. That's why I, you know, I'm not religious or anything. You, know? <laughs> you can ask so, my mom. The minute you tell somebody not to do something, your brain actually has. Here's the way it works uh, cognitively. Your brain first has to say, okay, Daryl said, don't think of a pink elephant. What does that mean? I have to create a pink elephant in my it's mind, and then I have to say, Oh shit, I'm not supposed to do that. Well, it's too late. <laughs> You've already done it. <laughs> so if I if I tell you don't think of a naked man right now, um you what? have to first of all think of a naked man. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then you have to say, Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Well, religion does that all the time. Don't think of sex, don't look at porn. You know, don't imagine sex, sexual things in your mind. The don't command actually creates the very thing they say not to do. Right. That's what makes it so difficult for people to understand what's going on. Because even as they're being told not to, and even if they pray to Jesus, even as I'm praying to Jesus to help me not think about naked men, I'm thinking about <laughs> naked men. <laughs> Uh, and oh my gosh! I, I think that's just it, that sets you up for just an unhealthy fixation or attitude towards sex. Like, absolutely. If, if you're allowed to think about it and you're allowed to look at it and participate in it, then it's just there, and it's just kind of a normal part of humanity. For myself, yeah. like whenever I wasn't allowed to think about sex, that's all I could think about. But now that I am, I can just look at people as people. I can look at bodies as just bodies. And for me, what's what's really, you know, a turn on for me now isn't so much just, you know, the the sight of somebody's body as much as it is context, you know, the, uh, the interaction with a person, um, you know, the attraction to a person and it being mutual. To me, yeah. that's far, far, you know, more substantial than just simply looking at porn. Um, yeah. 
so, I mean, like I said, uh, I think that they're creating the problem. And, and kind of trying to do a little bit of research for the show, I was trying to be fair. I always try to be critical. I was trying to do some research into, you know, sex addiction and, you know, see what some other people had said about it. And what actually ended up being really frustrating was just about every article that I, I pulled up or, or, you know, video that I watched, at some point, it would turn religious. Yeah, and, yeah. like, they kept pointing to sex as the problem or porn as the problem. But what, what would end up being, like, you know, they would describe a, a scenario and the problem wasn't actually the sex. The problem was maybe, you know, consent or, you know, something else, but it was never actually the sex itself. Right, um, right. I think that's actually really frustrating because it's hard to find any actual research on there is there is no research christians don't like doing research all we want is an, <laughs> anecdotes but so christians here, let would... me tell you uh, the was, the, was... the research shows that he the more religious you are the more likely you are to self-identify as a, a sex addict right it, sex addiction is a religious construct it is not a scientific construct josh grubbs uh researcher out of Case Western, I believe it was. I'm not sure where he's now, but he's he's uh, done the, the cutting edge research on this for 10 years. And his research shows over and over and over again, it's religious people who identify as sex addicts, not, not secular people, not people who are raised with sex positive values. So we need to understand that sex addiction, I mean, when you, are, when you get um, diagnosed as a sex addict, was it your mother-in-law that had diagnosed you? Was it your wife or husband that diagnosed you? You know, it's not a psychologist because there's no sex. There's nothing about sex addiction in the DSM-5. Oh, you could I mean, not. You could not get insurance coverage for a sex addiction. <laughs> like, I, I would be willing to grant that I'm sure there's a psychologist out there who would claim that. I just... Christian psychology. Yeah, that's the thing. Well, it's yeah, like but they the, better not turn it into the insurance company because they won't get reimbursed. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like the the pro like they'll always come back to, you know, trying to abstain from porn or abstain from masturbating or, you know, abstain from sex at all or it, just any of these things. And it's like, well, why why is abstinence the goal? Um yeah. It's like if you had a, a standard of not wanting to eat food that tastes good. Of course, that's the only thing you're going to be able to think about is is tasty food. Uh, I mean, to the point that you would probably think that you're addicted to it because that's literally all you can think about. Um, yeah. Once you're allowed to have it, you can just enjoy it and just kind of go about your normal life. I also yeah. feel like a part of it has to do with, you know, you only should have eyes for one person. And so, like, mm -hmm. the porn aspect of things makes that just so sinful because you're looking at other women or men or what have you. Um, so I think that plays a part as well as, like, societies. Yeah, and the whole uh, religious narrative about – the whole religious narrative is you're betraying your spouse if you're looking at porn or if you're thinking about somebody else. And it's a right. thought crime. And it's Jesus – Jesus said, you know, you, you can't think about anything can't do this uh, thinking about other people or you're committing a thought crime. Christianity is all about thought crimes. And, it, you know, that's pretty stupid because nobody, nobody can control what I think. Even if I'm having sex with somebody, I have another person in front of me. My mind is going to wander to somebody else. I will guarantee you that. It's, and <laughs> yours will too. 
And that's just the way things work in the human brain, especially if you've had sex with that particular person a lot over a long period of time. It's called, it's a very simple concept called satiation. And humans get satiated about a lot of things. If I said, uh, you two, uh, from now on, you're going to have to have steak every night for the rest of your life. And it always has to be medium well, period. You can't have any other kind of steak. How long would it take you to want to vomit at the thought of steak? <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably about two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so that's satiation. Humans like variety. We like adventure. We like uh, trying different things. So if you are, if you are, I mean, the, the religious notion is you have to be with the same person all your life. I mean, the definition of monogamy is one sex partner for the rest of your life, for all your life. In fact, if you've had two sex partners in your life, you are not monogamous by definition. Right. I mean, just look at the New Testament. That's the definition Jesus gave us, if he existed. Anyway, there's so, that's a whole other debate here. <laughs> so there's so much to, so much of these, the ideology has taught us and told us about what porn is, what our psychology is, what we can't do with our minds while we're having sex. I'm telling you, I probably have rarely, rarely had sex with somebody that my mind didn't go to somebody else or to a porn site I watched last week or to somebody I know that I'd really, you know, they don't like me, but I really like them kind of thing. <laughs> that's pretty damn normal. Yeah. And yeah. when a religion says you can't do that, then every time you have sex and you think about somebody else, you've committed a sin. What are you going to do with that? How's right. it going to make your life? How are you going to enjoy the sex with the person you are with? It doesn't mean I'm not enjoying that person. But that person and I, she, she may be thinking about her last boyfriend and wishing she was with him. I don't <laughs> oh, know. my gosh. <laughs> Who knows? Well, he may have been a good fuck, but a horrible person. You know, that happens. <laughs> uh, that's true. Well, and, like, I kind of find, too, that with more variety, you kind of appreciate people more um, yeah, for mm -hmm. what they do have to offer because everybody is different. So um, yeah, I, I kind exactly. of feel like, like if all you ever have had is steak then yeah, it's, it's fine. But when you can contrast steak against, you know, sushi, then you, you appreciate it for how different it is uh, in a lot of different yeah. ways. Yeah. And back to sociosexual orientation, this all plays right into it because the, the mind, the mind of the highly adventurous, highly sex driven person is probably going to be constantly searching the environment for new experiences. When the person on the other end of the spectrum, the social sex spectrum, will have no interest in porn or no interest in other partners, and missionary style once a week is perfect. And if here, here's the here's the trick though, what if they married a person who was on the other end of the spectrum, mm -hmm. <laughs> made, the, or or what if that other person in the spectrum is a woman? who's decided she doesn't want to follow the religion anymore. And once she gets out, she realizes, I don't have to follow all this sexual bullshit. I want mm -hmm. to adventure. What are you going to do with that? And of course, the religion will say, well, she's sinning. She's a harlot. She's you know, going to name, you're going to use all, this, all these uh, labels to try and shame her. 
when in fact she's just finding her, she's bouncing, bouncing out. I've heard many women say they bounce too. Thomas is not just you. And many women <laughs> got, got out of uh, repressive religion and went wild, had some great sexual experiences, maybe some bad ones too, but they found their level and their level instead of the two of the Baptist church was really a seven. That's where they want to be. That's where they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so you, just I think that that makes a lot of sense that people find their own level and they not just accept the level the church gives them. Right. Because quite frankly, kind of... the Catholic church would say, you don't have any levels. You can't have sex unless you're having babies. That's like a zero. <laughs> right. Oh gosh, I would never have sex. <laughs> no kids for me. Thank you. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> so um, I kind of wanted to read a couple of the comments. I'd, Probably can't get through all of them because there's a lot. Um, okay. Just a, a couple of them here, though. Keisha said, uh, and this, I, th- I think the sex addiction uh, title kind of drew in more comments, but uh, she said, I believe sexual fixation can occur through trauma and may even become a type of escapism. Fixations and escapism can run hand in hand with undiagnosed ADHD, OCD, borderline personality disorder, PTSD, etc., I also believe that dark personality traits and disorders like narcissism, sociopathy, uh, etc., are strongly linked to so- social sexual desires. Because if you feel like you're good in bed, you want to show off and also learn a new person and the way their mind and body work and react, almost like a new video game. You know all the controls, but it's still a new game with different ways of doing things. Another thing. Uh, that came to mind is new relationship energy addiction, which speaks for wait, itself. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Is that the same person saying that? Yeah, all of them. Oh, oh, oh okay, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm still reading that. That was all the comment. Okay, okay. Well, let, first of all, let's go back and say every, everything she said is true. It has nothing to do with sex addiction. Sex addiction is a religious notion. Right. What she's talking about is the way people use sex. Right. You can have a Facebook addiction. Of course, nobody talks about Facebook addictions. Uh, I don't. I don't know anybody's talking about their oh. TikTok TikTok <laughs> addiction. There is a uh, there's a documentary on Netflix about it now. But aside from that, oh, yeah, people don't. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. So they're finally recognizing <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah. Here's the deal. It's really if you look at the history of addiction science, it is abysmal. It is really difficult. Even even within something that almost everybody would agree, think, I, I don't agree, but almost everybody thinks there's such thing as alcohol addiction. There's a debate about that. Of course, Alcoholics Anonymous deeply mm-hmm. believes in, in the addictive nature of alcohol. But when you really start digging down into this stuff, you realize that most people who appear to have what most people would say is an alcohol addiction don't keep that so-called addiction and don't even need treatment for it. They'll be over it in three years. Why are they appearing to be an addict? Well, I can probably question them, find out that they're going through a divorce. Right. Okay. Is a mechanism. Yeah. It's simply a coping mechanism. And that's kind of what the commenter is, is getting towards. Life happens. People use coping mechanisms but do not label them addiction. That is a moral religious notion. I think that's why, for example, secular sobriety uh, groups 
are much more successful and can be measured as successful than Alcoholics Anonymous. Of course, you can't tell anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous that it doesn't work because the 97%, uh, the 3% that it worked for stayed and the 97% it didn't work for left and they never heard from them again. <laughs> so that's the way addiction research has been done. And of course, Alcoholics Anonymous and other groups have a financial reason for to keep the notion of addiction. Religious groups has a financial reason to keep the notion of addiction. It's it's psychologically damaging. It's simply wrong. Let's let's look at people's lives and ask this. Evidently, you're using alcohol right now to cope with a life experience. Let's talk about right. that. Or That's maybe kind of you. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that kind of goes right along um, like with what you were saying. Uh, another comment on there, uh, my friend Kyle. Uh, said, since sex addiction doesn't exist, is it possible that it's just mislabeled? Like, if a person has an unhealthy thought process about something and solely thinks about that one thing, would that not be the same? It's not necessarily an addiction, but people can be consumed by one thought. So he's basically saying, is, it, is there a difference between a fixation and an addiction? Well, let's, let's throw out the word fixation. Let's, call, let's look at obsession and compulsion. And you, we can identify and we can diagnose obsessive-compulsive issues, whether you want to call it a disorder or not. I will tell you this. If a, <laughs> if a burglar breaks into my house and destroys my property, maybe holds me hostage for even a short period of time with a, with a weapon, leaves and does not get caught, what do you think my mind's going to do for the next, you know, six years? <laughs> right. I, my, my, am I, so am I obsessed about safety? And am I obsessed about being attacked and held hostage? And you could say, yep, Daryl, you think of nothing but that. And you think of it so much that you've lost your job. You think of it so much that you, it's destroyed your marriage. So, so am I obsessed with this? Yes, I'm obsessed. Do I have a good reason to be obsessed? Well, you know, you could debate whether I have a good reason or not, but it did happen. Right. <laughs> like it's, the guy it's helped traumatic. me with a gun. Yeah, it was traumatic. So that plays into something else. We talked about uh, trauma. Yes, mm -hmm. tra sex can be a way to deal with trauma, just like alcohol could be a way to deal with trauma. If you what when you label it as an addiction, you're misdiagnosing. I am traumatized. Let's deal with the trauma of that robbery. Let's deal with the trauma of divorce. Let's deal with the underlying issue, not use religiously motivated notions of sex addiction or right. even alcohol addiction. Let's let's get to the root of the cause. And and you're playing right into the religious people's notions when you uh, you allow them to label you as a sex addict or a porn addict. Right. The research also shows, by the way, you go right along with it, um, uh, Thomas. You actually made a comment years ago, I think, when I said something on a podcast. The mm -hmm. research shows that when you leave religion, your, your porn consumption goes down. It doesn't go down to zero, but it goes way down. Yeah. Right. And that's what you yourself said that. But I, our own research, research I did back in 2012, showed that 
leaving a religion was great for getting rid of some of the porn, so-called <laughs> porn addiction. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you look at the like the highest porn consumption rates in the country, uh, they come from Utah, which is yeah. also yeah. like the most conservative. I mean, uh, yeah. Provo, I think whenever I worked in Provo years ago, um, building out a, a phone network there, uh, that was the number one most conservative city in the United States. Oh, um, yeah. So it, it actually yeah. kind of makes sense that that does correlate. And Mississippi's number two, by the way. Oh, yeah. I think, you're, I, I, think I remember seeing that before. You're right. Yep. You know, yep. the, t- the taboo-ness and the dirtiness makes it kind of fun, though. So. <laughs> I, I, am right, I am right with you, Sarah. <laughs> um, somebody did comment saying that, uh, and I don't know what, what his point necessarily was, if it was just kind of a way of, of trying to relabel or just not understanding terminology or, or what, but uh, he commented that the World Health Organization recently added compulsive sexual behavior disorder to its list of recognized orders. Are you familiar with that um, disorder? Yes, yes. And remember, it's compulsive. It's not addictive. Mm-hmm. Right. The World Health Organization, yep, the, uh, uh, that just happened this year. The United States uh, DSM has not chosen to do that. It's a big debate whether it should be in there or not. But the fact is people you are compulsive about certain things and are we – and let well, let's label it compulsive. I have no mm-hmm. problem with that. Right. I don't. I have a big problem calling it addictive, though. And the right. World Health Organization did not call it addictive. And there's no diagnosis for any kind of addiction like that in the World Health Organization uh, categories. Period. Um, yeah, it's I, also not nearly as big a problem as you make it out to be. Right. I mean, Europe does not have this problem near to the degree we do. Because the right. problem is, is religious. It's not. <laughs> and <laughs> and if you don't have a lot of religion, you're not going to have a lot of people with this so-called uh, compulsion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what it is, it's if the way to understand it is if something's causing you discomfort, if it's getting in the way of your job, if it's interrupting your relationships, if it's disrupting your sexual relationships, if any of those things are true, then it is it is disturbing you. And let's try and understand what might be driving the behavior. Mm-hmm. We can say you are you are feeling compulsive about the sex. Was it could we identify and say, oh, you you were sexually abused by a Catholic priest when you were four years old? Uh, is that sex addiction? And if it's compulsion, which we could diagnose. How do we treat it? We don't treat it as an addict addiction. We treat it as a compulsion that's related to trauma. Right. Let's treat yeah. the trauma and, and not not judge the sex part of it. Basically, and the sex part of it will probably sex probably probably disappear or might disappear once we treat the underlying trauma. That is actually a really good point because for me, um, I'm a child of trauma for a very very long time, unfortunately. And I became hypersexual. Um, of course, the trauma was sex-related. So I became very hypersexual as a teenager um, into, like, probably my early 20s. And then, like, over time, as I healed um, with my own teaching and training, um, I became demisexual. So I'm, like, on the opposite side of the spectrum. Exactly. So, yeah. Yep. You have, Sarah, you found your own level. I sure did. <laughs> but you had to go through hell to find it because 
<laughs> the religion told you one thing, the trauma told you another thing. You know, there yeah. was lots of lots of roads you had to take to find where your level is. And let's be honest about this. You might not maintain that level. You might want to go to another level five years from now, 10 years from now. Uh, and yeah. I find people through, through the life cycle, uh, people change and can change pretty dramatically in their interest in sex and the kind of sex they want to have and how much sex they want to have, who they want to have sex with. All those things are variables that can change quite dramatically from year to year, certainly from decade to decade. Daryl Ray is not the same sexual being at 70 that I was at 30. And at 30, I wasn't the same sexual being I was at 18. I can look back on my life and see real patterns of adjustment and change, exploration, experimentation. And I mean, I got into a pretty much a decade and a half, almost 20 years of BDSM. I loved it. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> but I wasn't that interested in anything like that when I was in my 20s. I was too busy having a, my wife and I were too busy having babies and me getting my doctorate. <laughs> I, didn't time, I didn't have time to beat anybody's butts. But, oh my gosh. <laughs> plus That's my so wife funny. was very religious. She was, she probably oh. wouldn't let me. <laughs> oh. but life, life, life really makes you change. I mean, think about on the social sexual orientation index, you might, be really high at 30 uh, on the index, but by the time you get to be older, 60s, 70s, your your own horm hormones have changed dramatically mm -hmm. and you your interest will go to the other end. Right. The in yeah. I find I find it interesting that's that is the pathway. It's a normal pathway. The older you get, the less your hormones going to be driving you. You're not going to be out there trying to swing from the chandeliers like I mentioned earlier. <laughs> But I'm going to have to you find are... you a chandelier to swing. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> you no, sound no, really I, excited I about that. <laughs> that was just I'll... a saying I heard when I was a younger. <laughs> but but the, the point I want to make is that you, I, in religions, for example, you see all these um, ministers, hot, uh, sexy ministers <laughs> with, you know, trophy wives up there and they're, talking about sex and they don't know what the fuck they're talking about, of course, <laughs> but those people, and then they get caught screwing somebody they shouldn't have screwed because in yep. order to be that charismatic and dynamic, you're probably also scoring high on social sexual orientation index. Yep, you're probably very church. adventurous. Yeah. No, does that happen to your church? Yeah. The, uh, music minister and the pianist. <laughs> oh. oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I could, we had eight different ministers in, in just the time I was from, um, uh, from the time I was 12 years old to the time I was 21 years old, eight different ministers got caught with their pants down. All males, yeah. of course, but they oh were fucking females that they shouldn't have been fucking. According to their, I don't care who they fuck, but their religion <laughs> cer certainly did. That's the thing. But it's... they're, Oh, it's like all, all of the, the harm and damage that's caused doesn't seem to be from the desires themselves. It just seems to come from the standards and the expectations. Yeah, in a, in a different Right. If it's a different context, you know, the, the, yeah. the world that I live in, that kind of thing is just different. It's, it's a less of a risk. It's, it's more about consent and honesty and communication yeah. and less about desires because that's, yep. you know, that's just understood that that's just what people have. <laughs> Yeah, right.
By the time a minister makes it through a career up to 60, 70 years old and becomes, you know, respected in their religion and all, their sex drive has gotten so low, they can turn around and say, you're all sinners. And they can say it with a straight face because they don't have, they haven't had sex in 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) True. That's true. Mm -hmm. I I think we use a lot of the crimes and a lot of the violations, a lot of the ethical issues that come out of religion are really tied into the social sexual orientation. I mean, you you could explain it that way. Right. And uh, I mean, Look at a Catholic priest who can't have any sex, can't even masturbate. Gee, many. Well, no yeah. wonder they're they're molesting and raping little boys. You know, there's, oh, that's just it's gonna come out somewhere, and uh, mm-hmm. most often in an unhealthy way when you're yeah. repressed. At least in my and experience. Look at uh, Josh Duggar. Just the last yeah. few weeks. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not the first time he's been caught. He's, no, he got not. out of jail free a couple times before, and now he's finally going to probably go to prison for the rest of his life. Yeah. And I, I, I have to say Josh Duggar is a victim of that heinous right. sexual ethic that just entraps people. I feel sorry for his wife. But, yeah. you know, these, these people have never had a choice in their entire life, neither him nor his wife. And unfortunately, none of his brothers and sisters had this choice. And there's a very abusive concept within Christianity, and that is you must forgive your abuser. Hmm. And so... Oh, yeah. I hate that. I hate it. And so he abused his sisters and one of their friends, and they were forced to forgive him, which allowed him to continue perpetuating and perpetrating. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind Christianity of what the Catholic is a very Church abusive. Yeah, exactly. You got to forgive the priest and 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 the father knew, and the father basically just told him to pray. So <laughs> that helped yep. a lot. Well, no, they they sent him off to a sex addiction camp to get uh, over his sex addiction. Yeah, and, no, I heard that they sent him to like a family member's house. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. And then he was supposed to pray with that family member. It was like an uncle or somebody. He was supposed to mm-hmm. work all day and all that. But initially, I think they were going to send him or they may have sent him off. You know, they got these sex addiction places. They're like, you know, you go there and get over your sex addiction. And, <laughs> like conversion uh, therapy. Yeah, basically. It, it is. It's very much like conversion therapy with some of the same techniques. It's heinous and it's torturous and it's yeah. abusive and it creates all sorts of shame in the, in the victims who are sent to these. I mean, why... 12, 13, 14-year-old boys and girls are being sent to these camps mm. because they've been labeled as sex addicts by their preacher or by their parents. That is and fucking That's, that's right when you go through puberty and are experiencing yeah, all that. Yeah, you're confused yeah. a lot of times. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. That's, that should be illegal. Well, they, you know, Sarah, you are, you, you are, I mean, speaking of you and I and Thomas, or maybe we were confused at that time in our lives. But what if we had been raised in a sex positive family and give age appropriate sex education? Would right. we be as confused? No. There are, there are cultures. There are actually cultures in the world. The, the Maganian culture in the South Pacific comes to mind where teenagers don't seem to be confused. They don't go yeah. through this rebellious phase. They don't go through this, crazy 
you know, making bad decisions phase because their sexuality is not being driven in the wrong direction by the religion or by the culture. I, I didn't grow up very religious at all. And I remember as like a young, it was probably pre-teens, I was watching this show on, I don't know if it was on HBO or what, but it was called Talk Sex with Sue. And she was an older sex therapist and she, very sex positive. And I've always had a sex positive mindset. So it's never been a taboo for me, which I'm very thankful for. Oh, even with okay. like Even with like the trauma that I went through, um, sex positivity was always kind of a thing for me. I've always been passionate about, you know, sex positive topics and stuff, um, which is why I'm on this podcast right now. <laughs> well, good for you. And you might be interested to know I met Sue. She and I. Oh, really? Out. Yeah. There was a conference. You remember when I did the secular sexuality um, um, research back in 2012, 13, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the Canadian humanists had a conference called Secular Sexuality. They named it after my, my research, and I was the keynote speaker. But Sue was one of the other keynote speakers, and I was able, I was on the same stage with her speaking, and I got to meet her. She's She's pretty, I don't know how old she is now. She's got to be 90 or 95. I mean, she's pretty old. Yeah. She was quite a bit older than I was. So I, I don't know. I don't even know if she's still alive, but that was a great show, wasn't it? I love her. Like, yeah, it was a great show. And like, it helped me as a young girl, like understand sex and sexuality. Um, I, I was confused too. I think most kids are confused when they, you know, are going through puberty like, and stuff. Yeah. But especially yep. about sexuality and all that fun stuff. But I just loved yeah. having, you know, having that as a resource to like learn and uh, without feeling judgment or shame. Um, so yeah, wow, Man, you like, were you were lucky, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was thirteen, <laughs> when I was thirteen, I was you know I remember in youth group being taught that if I ever had sex before I was married, I'd be cheating on my future spouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh wow that's i don't want to do that to somebody that's horrible yeah yeah well that's that's that was the that's the way they labeled it back then well they yeah. still do i mean i still hear yeah. that now I, crazy I, I i feel like it's probably i i meet more and more christians who are more liberal than i was growing up so i i think that yeah, you know, they're trying to stay relevant. So um, some are some are adapting more than others, probably. But I also live yeah. in a, a little bit more liberal place than I I grew up in too. So that could yeah, also that be part of it. Yeah, makes a big difference. Yeah, it makes a big difference. I don't know what. Yeah, it makes a, a huge difference. But still, and going back to you, Sarah, I'm going to suggest that yes, you weren't raised in a in a restrictive environment, maybe, and you weren't um, indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. However, you were still a part of this culture, and there's a lot of sex negativity in the culture. Yeah. I, I'm, I can't speak for you, Sarah, but I'm guessing there's probably some ideas you picked up in teenage years that you had to get rid of later around sex or sexuality that came from the culture itself. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, definitely sexuality was the biggest one because, you know, I identify as queer, so I'm not straight. Yeah. So that yeah. was a really hard one for me is, is going through at a very young age, my sexuality. And I remember preteen being confused and thinking, oh, am I gay? Am, 
Am I straight? What am I? I'm so confused. And I just held it as a secret. And I just recently came out last year and I'm 30. So, I mean, that alone goes to show that, you know, I was repressed in some way. There you go. Great, great example. I, yeah, that's perfect. I just think, uh, well, for example, in, when somebody's growing up, I don't care how sex positive, I don't care how non-religious their family is, a boy or a girl is still going to school. They're still hearing religious people talk about it. They're still getting exposed to the purity culture. They're going to gym class. They're changing clothes and hearing people making fun of other people's bodies. I mean, I remember this vividly in eighth grade, watching the jock boys, the the athletes in eighth and ninth grade make fun of the nerdy kid that was taking a shower with them. And I mean, it was just horrible treatment. I'm, I'm not, they're not making fun of me. They're making fun of somebody else. And I'm just shocked at what I'm hearing and seeing. And I was raised in a pretty conservative home, but you, that was just, that had an impact on my brain. <laughs> yeah. Even if I'd have been a non-religious person, that would have impacted me. That's right. the kind of shit that's going on for kids. That's what confuses kids. It's 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 because we got terrible values in our culture about sex. <laughs> yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, I I I think you're right. Like I I would say even a lot of the the things that I learned about sex I didn't even hear directly. It was it was just messaging from you know the culture around me. I I don't remember ever specifically being told that you know masturbating is a sin, but I knew it was, um, and I felt you know, deeply guilty about it. Uh, so I, it's whether or not you're explicitly being told something, you still pick it up from society. Uh, Cause that's, that's the values that we do have. Absolutely. Yep. So, yeah. It's, I really, it, it, I, that's, I really appreciate your, you know, your, your work and your contributions in that regard, just for trying to, uh, you know, normalize sexuality. Yep. Well, I love doing this. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you guys. And um, we haven't even gotten into, you know, like masturbation, which I no. always like to talk about. Oh. <laughs> Maybe we'll have, we'll have to talk again about that. <laughs> hey, you are welcome to come back on as many times as you want to. Yeah, We have more time than you do. Yeah, okay, I mean, we're okay. just chilling. <laughs> All right. Well, Plus, I you know. Gonna, I want to oh, move go ahead. on. Uh, we, I want to... I need to move on and get some other stuff done today, but um, I, I would be happy to come back and talk about other stuff related yeah. to, you know, any of my expertise. Uh, of which you have very much. Yeah. And, uh, and I will definitely be on that podcast because okay. I love talking about stuff like this. So <laughs> I really appreciate you uh, taking an hour out of your time and uh, coming and hanging out with us. But uh, did you have any final thoughts for us that you'd like to leave us with tonight? Well, I would like to um, just put a plug in for for my passion, and that is recovering from religion, and uh, have people find you know go to the website and look at the services that we offer, and recognize that even though you may not need recovering from religion, uh, you buy as friends that are trying to deal with some of the shit that they are they were taught purity right. culture stuff, you know that sort of stuff. So I've got a secular sexuality. I mean, I've got to recover from religion, look at our resources, chat with our agents. And if you need a therapist, go to the Secular Therapy Project and you can find somebody who's well-trained, evidence-based, will not pray with you and will not send you back to church. So 
Thanks for having me on. And of course, read my book, Sex and God and the yeah. God Virus. Very good book. Super good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. And for right. yeah, the people out there listening, if you'd like to join us in the conversation, uh, go to our website, analyzepodcast.com. Click on the Become a Guest, fill out the form, and we'll be in touch. Uh, otherwise, man, thanks for joining us and uh, hope that you have a good rest of your week. See you. Okay. Ya. See you, Daryl. Bye. All right. Good night.